Paul and his companions had parted from the Ephesian elders and had set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. Having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. Kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another, and then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Let me pray for us. We'll get into, wor- into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you that uh, your word challenges us. God, that when we, when we hold up scripture, when we, when we study what it means for our lives, when we, when we teach it to one another, God, you don't leave us the same, but you challenge us, Father, from your word. We pray, Father, that that would be true this morning, that, that as we study your word, God, that you would challenge the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we act, God, that you would, you would challenge the things that do not bring you glory, and God, that you would, you would challenge us to, to, to do the things that do bring you glory, God, that by your spirit and by your grace, you would mold us and shape us in the, image of, in the image of Jesus, and we would be a church that, that would go and take the gospel to the nations, God, that we would be a church that is a bright, shining beacon of salvation in Jesus to a lost world. God, I pray that, that we would leave here this morning better because of our time in the Word. God, that, that we would be people who would look more like Jesus because we not only read, but we hear, we, we know, and we apply what your word is teaching us, Father. Give us ears to hear it and a heart that is ready to apply it. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Uh, back when I was playing baseball, uh, our practices would usually consist, there's usually the first part of practice, one of the first things we would do is we would get the infield out there, everybody would be in their positions, and then the coach would get up and they'd start hitting ground balls at us in the infield. Now, as a pitcher, I wasn't expected to make any great plays, right? I was, I was not expected to have any uh, contribution pretty much at all. Like, they, they would maybe bunt to us a little bit, like give us a little slow roller so that we could catch it, um, but most of the time, I wasn't expected to make any great plays. In fact, one day when I was pitching, I was in a game, and uh, I had to go run to cover first base uh, to make a double play because the first baseman was involved in it. And so I had to go run to first base, and the second baseman throws me the ball, and I put my glove up to catch it, and the ball hit me square in the chest and just dropped to the ground. And everybody looked at me, and they're like, you're, you're a pitcher. Like you're. In all fairness, the first baseman got in my line of sight. But, but... Not the most athletic play, right? As a pitcher, not expected to make any dramatic, uh, dramatic plays. But if you're an infielder, if you're a second baseman or shortstop, third baseman, first baseman, as the coaches were hitting the baseballs at you, they would expect you to make some good plays, right? So you, you have to cover a wide range of area. And so they'd, they'd have to run from one, area, one side of the field to the next trying to, trying to get the ball. And every now and then, coach would hit a ball that was a little too far out of reach, Right? And so they would run to the ball, and they'd kind of throw their glove out it and, and try to make an effort, but they're not, they're not going to dive in practice, right? Our jerseys are clean. Right? They, uh, the, you got to go wash baseball pants and get the stains out, so you're not going to dive. Plus, the dirt's not always – it's not soft, so it hurts a little bit. And so they're not going to dive in practice for the ball. They'll, they'll run, and they'll make, they'll make an attempt at it, but they won't, they're not going to lay out for it. And my coach, Coach Melvin, one of my coaches, he, was, he had this saying that he loved. Right? If he hit a ball 
and was a little too far out of reach, and the person would run and, and make, try to make a play at it, but they weren't going to dive for it. What Coach Melvin would say is he would, he would stop practice and he'd yell, could you have gotten that? And the kid would say, I don't think so. He goes, you'll never know now because he didn't lay out for the ball, right? And I thought, that's deep, right? I'm going to use that in a sermon one day. Um, but it's true. If you didn't sell out for the ball, you're not going to make the big play, right? You might make a lot of good plays with your athleticism. You may be able to, to get the, the plays that are easy, that are simple, the ones that are, that are coming your way, but you're not going to make the big play. You're not going to rob somebody of a hit. You're not going to rob somebody of a home run if you don't lay out for it, right? If, you don't, if you're not sold out to make the play, you're not going to make the big play. And I think as Christians, a lot of times what we, what we do is we opt out of doing things that a, a, a greater work that we can be a part of with, for the kingdom of God. Because it's going to cost us too much, or it's going to ask, God asks something of us that we're not willing to give up. I think a lot of times as Christians, our, our Christian life is like the infielder that's going to run, and they'll make the plays that come to them, but they're not going to, they're not going to dive for it. They're not going to sell out to do something and, and do a bigger work, a greater work, something that's, that's above and beyond and extra. Right? And so we'll do the things that come to us, but we're not going to sell out and do, do something big and above and beyond. We'll opt out of it because it it's costly. It's going to hurt. <laughs> it's going to be painful, and so we choose not to do it, but not Paul, right? The apostle Paul was a guy who, he was willing to dive, right? He was sold out for the name of Jesus. We, we have learned in the last few chapters in the book of Acts that Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, He's on his way to go proclaim the gospel uh, in the city of Jerusalem. And, and we know from the last chapter that Paul knows that things are going to go rough for him when he gets to Jerusalem. He's going to be imprisoned. He's going to be persecuted when he gets to Jerusalem. And yet Paul is still going to Jerusalem because God has asked Paul, God has, has led Paul to go to Jerusalem. That's a guy who is sold out for the name of Jesus, right? He is sold out for the name of Jesus, willing to give up everything and go to Jerusalem. And if you're like me, you may not have this thought, but the question that I have in my mind is, does that, isn't that cruel of God to, to, to have Paul go to Jerusalem knowing that he's going to be imprisoned, knowing that he's going to be persecuted? Right? Isn't, that, isn't that just cruel of God to tell Paul to do that? Does Paul even have a choice? Because in the book of Acts, up to this point, as Paul is heading towards Jerusalem, it's like he's being pulled there by a gravitational force. Like he, he has no other alternative. He is headed to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to be in prison, where he knows he's going to be persecuted. Does he even have a choice to get out of the way? Is God just this cruel puppet master who's forcing Paul to go to jail and be imprisoned and persecuted against his will uh, with no prom promise of benefit or anything? For the kingdom of God. Uh, but we find out in the text this morning, this is kind of the question that Luke is answering, is that Paul does have a choice. Uh, Paul isn't forced to go anywhere by God. Uh, he does have a choice. Verse 1, when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. Having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, Leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for, the ship, uh, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Now, Luke gives us this very detailed itinerary of Paul's trip to Jerusalem. 
Luke gives us travel narratives throughout the book of Acts. Like he tells them, this person went here, this person went here, this person went here. But most of the time in the book of Acts, when Luke gives us a travel narrative, he gives us this 10,000-foot view. Like they went from this city to this city, and that's all we really need to know, right? It'd be like me telling you I went from Dallas to Nashville. 10,000-foot view, that was the trip. That's really all you need to know, but not in this case. In this case, Luke is telling us, well, he didn't just go to Jerusalem. He went to this city, then this city, then this city, then this city, all the way to Jerusalem. That'd be like me telling you, instead of saying I went from Dallas to Nashville, or Fort Worth to Nashville, instead it'd be like me saying, well, I went from Fort Worth to Dallas, to Texarkana, to Little Rock, to Memphis, to Jackson, Tennessee, and then to Nashville, right? It is way more detailed than it needs to be. <laughs> but the reason, uh, you can see up here, uh, in the middle of the map, kind of in that line headed towards the south, towards Jerusalem, in the middle of the map, in the city of Ephesus, like all Luke needed to tell us is Paul went from that city across the ocean to Tyre. <laughs> like that's, that is all he needed to say. But instead, you see all the little arrows. Paul say, Luke says, Paul went to this next city, and then he went to the next city, and then we went to the next city. And then he tells us for good measure that while they're sailing all the way from what is modern-day Turkey to modern-day Lebanon, they passed the, the island of Cyprus, and they waved at it on the way and went through there, right? So th just for good measure, he gives us this extra landmark. Every city, every landmark, Luke is telling us about every little detail of the journey to Jerusalem. And the question is, why is Luke so detailed? Because I don't really care about most of these cities, right? I don't care about all these little details of Paul's travel. Why is Luke so detailed about it? And I think the reason that Luke is so detailed in this case is because it's like Paul is taking step after step after step towards Jerusalem. And you can feel the dread, the fear rising up as he's taking one step after another towards what he knows is going to be imprisonment and persecution in the city of Jerusalem. He didn't just travel to Jerusalem. He went over to Kos and got one step closer. Then he went over to Rhodes and got one step closer. And then we know, he went over to Patera and got one step closer. And then he got on a boat and he sailed and he saw the island of Cyprus, which is one step closer. And they sailed right past it and they landed in the city of Tyre, step after step after step. I'm picturing like the, the uh, old time executions where they would get a drummer out and every step that the condemned would take is one step closer to the gallows. Like that's what Luke is picturing here as we're taking step after step after step towards Jerusalem where he knows he's going to be imprisoned and persecuted. Step after step after step. Verse four, having sought out the disciples, now in the city of Tyre, we stayed there for seven days. That's, that was Paul's normal MO, right? That's normally what Paul did. He would go and he would travel to a new city and then he would go and he would, he would, he would encourage the Christians there on his way to Jerusalem. Every time they stopped, he, he built up the church. Paul was ever the pastor, someone who loved Christians, loved the church. And so he'd go and he'd, he'd pour into them knowing that he was only there for a day uh, or for a week in this case. And uh, he sought out the disciples, stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So Paul stops in the city of Tyre. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and, and we know every city he stops in is one city closer to Jerusalem, where he's going to go to prison and suffer persecution. And he gets to the city of Tyre, and he's proclaiming the gospel to these Christians. He's encouraging them and loving them. And this group of Christians say, hey, Paul, don't 
go to Jerusalem. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> like, they love Paul. They don't want to see him go to prison. They don't want to see him be persecuted. They don't want to see him possibly get killed. So they're, they're saying, Paul, don't go. Don't do it. <laughs> stay with us. Go back north. Whatever you do, stay out of the city of Jerusalem because we know it's going to be bad for you. And so can you imagine knowing that you're going to face persecution in Jerusalem, you're inching closer every step of the way, and now there's a group of Christians in the city of Tyre saying, hey, just don't do it. Like, don't go. It's very reminiscent of another story that is uh, painted for us in the Gospels, where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. In fact, there's a, a, a great parallel in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke wrote both of them. But in the book of Luke, it, a good chunk of the book of Luke is Jesus marching his way towards Jerusalem to face the cross, right? And then in the last part of the book of Acts, it's Paul marching his way to the city of Jerusalem where he knows he's going to face persecution. And while Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, during this whole scene, he's talking to his disciples. And he tells the disciples that he's going to be persecuted, that he's going to die a death on a cross. And Peter, who uh, had a constant case of foot and mouth disease, like Peter stood up and he said, uh, no, Lord, you're not going to do it. We're not going to let you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> right? Like, this is the enemy of God who is, uh, who is influencing your words by your uh, arrogance, by your jealousy. You are being influenced by the enemy of God to try to keep Jesus from doing something he knows he has to do. Going to Jerusalem and suffering on the cross for the good uh, and for the salvation of mankind. Right, so it's very reminiscent of that story as Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. Here's a group of Christians saying, Paul, don't go, except there's a key difference. There's one big difference between those two stories. In this case, it's not Satan who's influencing the Christians. It's not Satan who's trying to get Paul not to go. Look again in verse 4. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So the Holy Spirit is giving the Christians there in the city of Tyre this, this, this foresight, this knowledge that Paul's going to suffer in Jerusalem. And then by the Spirit, these Christians are saying, Paul, don't go. Don't do it. Don't suffer. Don't, don't, uh, don't leave us. In, in, in chapter 20, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, that he is constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So Paul tells the Ephesian elders in chapter 20 that he is on his way to Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit is sending him there. And then in 21, we get that the Spirit of God is, is influencing these Christians to tell Paul not to go. So what gives, right? Back-to-back -back stories. One, the Spirit of God is sending Paul to Jerusalem. The other, the Spirit of God is encouraging Paul not to go. So what gives? What we see here in this story is the Holy Spirit, by these Christians, is giving Paul a choice. Saying, Paul, just letting you know, again, it's going to be difficult. You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be persecuted. And here's an option for you. Don't go. God has a reason he wants Paul to go to Jerusalem. God has a plan for Paul, if he goes to Jerusalem, God wants Paul to go to Jerusalem. And we know this from earlier in the book of Acts where Paul says that he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to get launched out from 
to take the gospel further than it's ever gone before, that he's going to take the gospel all the way to the city of Rome, that it's the gospel is going to spread further than it ever has before once he leaves Jerusalem. This is before he knows he's going to be imprisoned, so he doesn't really know how the gospel is going to get to, uh, to Rome, but he at least knows that, when he, that the, the purpose of him going to Jerusalem is for the gospel to be advanced further than it ever has before. And so there's a reason that God wants him to go to Jerusalem, but, Paul's, but, but the Holy Spirit tells Paul, you don't have to. You don't have to lay out for the ball. You don't have to dive and put yourself on the line for this. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard, but you have a choice. Don't go. Verse 5. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. So here's this group of Christians telling Paul, once again, it's going to be hard. You're going to be in prison. You're going to be persecuted. Do not go. And Paul says, I have to go. I am choosing to go because God is sending me there for the purpose of his kingdom. So the name of Jesus will be made known. I am choosing to go to Jerusalem. So they all leave together the wives and the children, the whole families, everyone in the city of Tyre, all those Christians leave with Paul till they get outside the city. In verse, the second half of verse 5, kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So there, right outside the city of Tyre, the Christians kneel down, knowing that Paul is still going to Jerusalem, knowing that they did not convince him to stay. They knelt down, and they prayed that God's will would be done that the kingdom of God would advance, <laughs> that the name of Christ would be known in the world. They knelt down and they prayed and then they went their separate ways. And Paul was again on his way to Jerusalem. Verse 7. It gives us another story. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we, ar- we arrived at uh, Ptolemaeus. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. So here we have, again, uh, another example of, of Luke giving us way more details than he needed to. Again, Luke could have said, we went from Tyre to Jerusalem. That's not that far. All Luke needed to say was he went directly there. But again, Luke, in this case, Luke gives us every single city that Paul traveled to on his way to Jerusalem. They leave from Tyre, they go to Ptolemaeus. They stay there a day. They leave from Ptolemaeus, uh, and they go to Caesarea, and they stay there for a period of time. Right, step after step after step, inch by inch, Paul is going to Jerusalem where he knows there's going to be pain and suffering and persecution. Verse 8, they stay in the house of Philip the Evangelist, who is one of the seven, uh, or they entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who is one of the seven, and he stayed with him, for he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So, so on their way, while they're staying in Caesarea, we, we catch up with Philip. This is a guy that we met way back in the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, where seven men were elected as kind of the first proto-deacons, right? The people whose office uh, tells us a little bit more about what the, what the office of deacon is going to look like. So he's one of the original seven deacon-ish people. And he's also an evangelist. We met him in, in Acts chapter 8 when he shares the gospel with someone, uh, with an Ethiopian eunuch on the road. So here's the guy who loves Jesus, who shares the gospel, who serves the church well. Uh, They stay at his house. Verse 10. 
while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So this is a, a, another story right after the first one that's identical to the first story. Here they are closer to Jerusalem, right on the doorstep, like the next city over. And a prophet comes over, led by the Holy Spirit, grabs Paul's belt, ties his hands and feet, and says, this is what's going to happen to Paul if he goes to Jerusalem. So with the, with the foreknowledge that the Holy Spirit gives him, once again, he's warning Paul, this is what it's going to be like if you go. And they hear that, and everybody surrounds Paul and says, Paul, don't go. Don't do it. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. We don't want to see you go through that. Don't go. Once again, we have a choice for Paul. Where Paul decided the Holy Spirit was leading him to Jerusalem. He wanted to sell out. He wanted to dive for the ball. He wanted to do and, and work and partner with God to do something incredible for the kingdom of God. He was going to give everything up in order to follow God and, and to make the name of Jesus known. He was sold out for the gospel. And he moves closer to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to be imprisoned and persecuted and maybe die. And he's given an opportunity to back out. And he says, nope, I'm still going to go through with it. And he gets closer to Jerusalem right on the doorstep. And he's given another opportunity to say goodbye by to say, no, I'm out. But instead, this is what Paul responds. Look with me in verse 12, or verse 13, sorry. Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? These Christians are, are weeping over Paul. They're, they're crying over him saying, Paul, do not go. We love you. We care about you. We don't want you to, to see you go through this. And Paul says, what are you doing? Weeping, You're, you are making me sad. Like, don't, don't cry for me. This is what he says in verse 13. I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So once again, Paul's given a choice. By the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit empowers Agabus to once again make very clear to Paul what's going to happen when he goes. And, it, and the, the good, well-intentioned, well-meaning Christians give him a choice and say, Paul, don't go. And Paul says, I'm willing to be bound, I'm, just like Agabus said. And not just to be bound, but even to die if it means people are going to know Jesus. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to put my body and my life on the line. I'm going to dive for the ball. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that people know Jesus. I'm going to Jerusalem. Verse 14, when he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. So they said, fine. God is leading you to Jerusalem. You know all of the risks. You know how hard it's going to be. We know we're not persuading you not to go. Uh, we know you're going to end up going anyways. And so, so may God's will be done through you. May people come to know Jesus. May, may God's will be done through his servant here who is sold out for him. And this is what we see in the passage this morning. This is the, the, the main idea of this text. That God uses sold out people to advance his will and to accomplish his will. God uses people who are sold out 
for the gospel, people who are sold out to make, uh, to make the name of Jesus known. He uses these people to accomplish his will. I want to be clear what I mean by uh, his will here. That there are a lot of things that come under the will of God. Right? There, there's a, we can argue all day about how big the umbrella is and how, uh, what, what all falls underneath that. But, but we know for a fact that one of the major pieces of the will of God, one of the things that God desires of all else is that people would know Jesus and experience the eternal life and salvation that comes from him. That they would have a re- restored relationship with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus and through their faith in him. God wants people to know Jesus, and so it is a major part of his will that the gospel would go further than it ever has before. That people who do not know Christ and do not have access to the gospel would place their faith in him. For example, there there are villages in Indonesia who have no access to the gospel, who have nobody there who who knows Christ, or have uh, nobody there who knows anybody who knows Christ. And it's God's desire that those people would come to know him that the gospel would advance where it never has before. In this case, it was God's desire, God's will, that the gospel would advance to the city of Rome further than it ever had advanced before to the heart of the Roman Empire where it could expand beyond where it ever has. That it's God's desire that people would know him and that the gospel would advance further than it ever has before. And God uses sold-out people to accomplish that will. God uses people who are willing to to give up anything and everything if it means that people will know Jesus. He uses them to advance the gospel further than it ever has. To make the name of Jesus known in this world. Here in in Roanoke, there are 60,000 lost people in a five-mile radius of this church. 60,000 people who do not know Jesus. But there are a lot of gospel witnesses in this city. Right? There are 50 gospel witnesses here in this room who live within driving distance of, of this city and of the people in this city. There's a church here in this exact location where the word of God is preached on Sundays and where the word of God is studied together on Sundays and at other points during the week. Right, there's a church right in this location where students gather on Wednesday nights to study the Word of God and to know what it means for their lives. There's a gospel witness here, and not just in this church. There are other churches in our community that proclaim the same gospel as we do and are working in our community to see people come to know Jesus. There's the Cross in the Crown Church, a church plant in Roanoke. There's Cross City North, who meets in, uh, in a trophy club. There's Cross Timbers in Argyle or First Baptist Keller. There are churches in our community that proclaim the gospel that are gospel witnesses. So but there are places in the world that have no gospel witnesses whatsoever. There are billions of people on the planet that have no access to the gospel at all. There are people in cities and towns and tribes and villages that don't know anybody who knows Jesus, who don't have a Bible in their language, and who will will spend the rest of their lives living without hope, without the life that comes from Christ, and they will die and spend forever separated from God in hell. It is God's desire that those people would know him, that the gospel would advance further than it ever has before. 
It's God's desire that missionaries would rise up and go overseas and take the gospel to a people who do not have it. It's God's desire that churches would be planted in our country and around the world to people who do not have enough gospel witnesses in their community. It's God's desire that that pastors would rise up from among churches and lead godly churches to, to follow after Christ. It's God's desire for the gospel to go further than it ever has, and he's going to use sold out people to accomplish that will. People who are willing to lose anything and everything if it means that the name of Jesus is going to advance. In the 1500s, the Catholic Church had uh, adopted a lot of uh, bad theology, uh, and it had uh, gone well beyond uh, the gospel and was uh, ended up proclaiming a false gospel uh, and leading people uh, who were under its provision, under its rule, leading people away from Christ with a false gospel and uh, and there were several different groups all throughout um, the, the, the world, several uh, in Europe, who all were rising up within a few hundred years to try to, to combat this. But the most famous in the 1500s was Martin Luther. He's a guy who recognized the heresies that were being proclaimed by the Catholic Church. He's a guy who, who was so burdened for the lost, so burdened that people would know Jesus, that he was willing to risk anything and everything if it meant that people would know Christ. And so he did what, what was dangerous. He did what was difficult. He took 95 theses, 95 reasons that the Catholic Church doctrine was incorrect, 95 explanations of the true gospel, and he nailed it to the door of one of the most popular uh, universities in the world. And he raised Catholic ire, and he was persecuted for the rest of his life for his views, but he kicked off what is known as the Protestant Reformation, where the true gospel was brought back out of the church, and we were able to see people come to know Jesus again, where we pointed people towards Christ. That was a guy sold out, willing to risk anything and everything for people to know Jesus, and God used him in a mighty way. The early 1700s, on the American frontier, there's a guy named David Brainerd, it's a guy who, uh, you know, there's nothing particularly special about him. It's not a guy who was uh, especially eloquent or uh, especially famous or well-known, but he was a guy who was deeply burdened for the Native Americans on the American frontier. So in the early 1700s in, the, in New England, he, he moved out to the, f- the furthest he possibly could out onto the frontier, and he interacted with several Native American tribes, and he moved from one tribe to another after several years, and he planted churches and made Christians among these Native Americans. Then he did that all the way up until his death. He was offered opportunities to come back to the main colonies, to be uh, pastor, to be professors, and he turned down all of the opportunities so that he could reach these Native Americans with the gospel. In fact, he's a guy that, that is known as the grandfather of the modern, modern missions movement because he, he, by his example, kicked off this whole wave of people deciding that people around the world need Jesus. <laughs> he was just a regular guy, but he was sold out, willing to lo- leave his, his comforts, willing to leave his own language, his own culture, and willing to live out on the frontier to make sure that these Native Americans know Jesus. A few decades later, a guy named William Carey in England He heard of the lost people all around the world. He recognized the the hundreds of millions of people who didn't know Jesus all around the world. And he decided that by being inspired by the example of David Brainerd, he decided that he wanted to take the gospel to the lost people of India. And he had a guy, a good, godly Christian guy who stood up and, and opposed him as he was getting ready to go to India. And he said, young man, 
If God wants to save the heathens, he's going to do it himself. He doesn't need you or me. But William Carey, again, the modern missions movement was just getting started. He was kind of, he's the father of it. He's the first one to go. And, uh, and he decided he would sit down and study the issue. And he wrote a book called An Enquiry into the Means, uh, an, an Enquiry into the Means of the Conversion of the Heathens. Uh, it's not catchy. Um, but it was phenomenal. <laughs> because the book, the whole, uh, the whole purpose of the book is that, that William Carey says, yes, God is going to use some means to save people. In fact, like God is going to save the heathens. Like God is going to take the message further than it ever has before, but he's going to use people to do it. Sold out people who are willing to leave their homes, leave their country, leave their language, and go reach people with the gospel where they've never been reached before. William Carey left home, went to India, and proclaimed the gospel in the nation of India. A few decades after that, Adoniram Judson heard of William Carey. He's, uh, Adoniram Judson was American. He heard of William Carey, and he decided that he wanted to take the gospel to the people of Burma. He wanted to go overseas. He would leave his, fa- his, his, his extended family. He would take his wife, uh, his newlywed wife, and go overseas on a dangerous voyage, go to the nation of Burma, who were hostile to Americans uh, with a government that did not like him. And he was going to go in there, and he was going to go proclaim the gospel. And so he left everything, and he went to Burma, and he endured years of hardship. He endured years in prison and persecution. But because of him, there's a Christian population there in Southeast Asia. That was a guy who was sold out that God used to accomplish his will, to take the gospel further than it ever has. Now, I want to be completely clear. The people that are sold out, who are willing to die for the plays, are, be- are not better Christians than the people who choose not to die. Right? Paul had a choice. He could have opted out at Tyre. He was on his way to Jerusalem, but when the Christians there said, Paul, don't go, it was the Holy Spirit that was leading them to say that. Paul could have in that moment said, you know what, that actually sounds horrible, I'm not going to do it. Or he could have continued on to Caesarea, and the, when the Holy Spirit again led Agabus to, to prophesy about what would happen to Paul, Paul could have said, you know what, that does sound terrible, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. It's okay. To be a Christian who's the kind of Christian who would stand up and make the plays that come to you, but not dive and do things above and beyond. Right? It's okay to be a Christian who is living for the Lord, who's glorifying God with everything that you have, who's reaching the people right around you with the gospel, who's, who's striving for Christ's lightness, living in the grace of God, contributing to the ministry of the church. It's okay to be a Christian who's doing the things that God has called you to do, and commanded you to do by his scripture without going above and beyond and being entirely sold out, being willing to risk personal life and personal injury, uh, willing to to leave your livelihood to, to advance the kingdom of the gospel. It's okay to not be one of the Christians that are diving for the ball, to be a David Brainerd, to be a, a William Carey, to be an Adoniram Justin. It's okay. But Paul, but, but God is going to advance his will. We know by the end of the book, we know that in Revelation that all nations around the world are going to know Jesus, that, that the gospel is going to advance to every kingdom on the planet. He's going to use somebody to take the gospel where it's never gone before. And so my question is, why can't that be us? Why can't that be me? Why can't that be you? He's going to use somebody to proclaim the gospel in Roanoke and the surrounding area. Why can't that be this church? 
God wants, the, God wants our area to know him. He wants to send revival here. Why can't he use our church to send revival to the city of Roanoke and the surrounding area? God wants to reach your neighborhood with the gospel, not just your neighbors, but your entire neighborhood with the gospel. Why can't that be you that he uses to reach your entire neighborhood with the gospel, with, with your burden for the lost people around you, your heart for them to know Jesus? Why can't God use you to reach the people around you with the gospel? God is going to send, raise up and send people all around the world to go, to go proclaim the gospel where it's never gone before, to go to Indonesia, to go to, to China, to go to Iran, to go to Kenya, to go to Nigeria, to go all around the world where the gospel is not present. He's going to raise up people to share the gospel there. Why can't that be you? Why can't he raise up missionaries from among this church to go around the world? We use the, the language of calling a lot as if like, I'm not really called to do that. But the, the way that wording, that calling language is used in the New Testament, he doesn't really use it that way most often. Like God may specifically call you to go overseas, but unless you hear this audible voice from God, right, you have a choice. You can do what God has called you to do on your day-to-day -day basis, or you can sell out and go above and beyond and join with the work of God, taking the gospel where it's never gone before. And it's, it's a choice that you have. If God, like Jonah, tells you, go to Nineveh, you need to go to Nineveh. But otherwise, God gives us the freedom to choose. We can be a gospel witness here in Roanoke. We, we can be a, a gospel witness here in our community. We can be a gospel witness in, uh, in China or Indonesia. We can be a gospel witness somewhere. But God is looking for some people to be sold out, to be willing to risk injury and life, be willing to, to, to give up their livelihoods and their language to go overseas and take the gospel where it's never gone before. He's willing, he's, he is looking to use people who are sold out, passionate about lost people to spark revival here in our community. God is looking for people who are sold out to do that. So why can't that be us? I question to you this morning. So why can't it be you? I want you to take a second, in just a second we're going to pray. And as I pray, I want you to search your own heart and ask, are you willing to be sold out for the gospel? Is it possible that God might be calling you to take the gospel where it's never gone before? That God might be calling you to go overseas, whether it's short-term or long-term, but to go take the gospel to people who do not have the gospel of Christ, who do not know the hope of eternal life and are dying and will spend forever separated from God in hell. Is it possible that God is raising you up to go? Is it possible that God is calling you to plant churches here in this country or around the world? To endure the, the hardship, the difficulty of getting a church started and doing all of the hard work of, of evangelizing and witnessing to a community that does not have enough gospel uh, lights, the gospel uh, preaching? Is it possible that God is calling you to start a church? to leave the comforts of your, your city, the comforts of your home, and to go start a church, to give financially, to do so, to do above and beyond, to be sold out? Is it possible that God is calling you to lead and serve in a local church as a pastor? Is it possible that God's desire for you is that you would, you would rise up and you would, you would lead a church, and with all the difficulties that, that come, I, I am so blessed to be part of this church 
where it is healthy and people are, are friendly and loving and caring, but not all churches are like this. And God needs pastors who will go to other churches that are toxic, that are difficult, that are broken and in fundamental need of, of new life. And to take the gospel to them and endure difficulties, endure struggles. But God is looking for people who are sold out, who will bring a toxic environment back to being a gospel light in their community. Is it possible that God is calling you to do that? Is it possible that God is calling you not just to reach your neighbors for the gospel, but your entire neighborhood out of a love and a passion for the people around you to know him? Is it possible that God can use you to start revival here? Some of you this morning, before you can take the gospel where it's never gone before, you need to place your faith in Jesus for the first time. You need to know the eternal life, the salvation that comes from Christ. You need the hope of eternal life. So this morning, in just a second, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. If that's you, and you want to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time, you want to experience the, the good news of salvation in Jesus. If that's you, that as while we sing, I want to be standing right here. I'd love to pray with you, and we have people who would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. Coming to the front is, is embarrassing or difficult. We have people in the back as, as well who would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Christ. Do not leave here this morning without the hope of eternal life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father.